I had been warned by Mr. Eyeball that snow was white and cold. But it was not white. It held all the colors of the spectrum. It was blue and green and yellow and teal. There were delicate pink tintings in some of the cliffs as we passed. As the light shifted in the sky, so too did the snow around us deepen, find new hues, the way an ocean is never blue, but some constantly changing color. Now was the cold simply cold. It was the devouring of heat, a complete sucking of warmth from the blood until what remained was the absence of heat. When the wind stirred, it would skies through the skin as if we were the cane and the wind were a terrible reaping. North we went, north and then west, and then north again. We stopped to rest the dogs. Our guide tethered them to stakes he had driven into the ice to keep them from attacking each other. They sat, hunched white mounds of fur ruffling in the wind, their eyes slivered shut. I made a quick, vivid sketch in pencil, wondering at their ferocity. Our guide passed us a small cube of what Titch explained must be blubber. It tasted rank, oily, but I did not complain. And all the while we spoke very little about what we were venturing towards or what we were leaving behind. I thought of my life at faith, and it all seemed a figment, a distant, vicious dream. Welcome to episode two of Lady Fiction. I'm Stephanie Schaefer and you just heard a quote from the novel we're talking about today, Essie Edugin's Washington Black, published in 2018. It was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, received the Giller Prize and was praised by the New York Times and the Washington Post as one of the best novels of the year. And it's specifically intriguing because of how it looks at the history of science and literature's and art's powers of storytelling and rendering perception. On this podcast, literature's powers of storytelling and the history of science have become a bit of a recurring theme. We talked about the history of gynecology last year, and in episode one of 2022, Sam Pinto discussed with me the epistemologies and oversights of the archive and the legacy of celebrity performance by black women in the past and present. As we will see in Washington Black, science is produced by white men who draw extensively on the labors and skills of a black boy, the protagonist and storyteller of Edugin's novel. Here with me today to discuss this in detail is my colleague Nele Zawalisch. Dr. Zawalisch is assistant professor, junior professorin for American literature at Trier University and an expert on African-Canadian and African-American studies. Her doctoral monograph on autobiographical and slave narratives by black authors in mid-19th century Canada appeared as Fugitive Borders in 2019 and is now also available open access from Transcript Verlag. 
Neil is currently examining the interconnections of sentimentality, gender, and comedy in U.S. culture and has published in national and international venues, including Zeitschrift für Kanada Studien, the Journal of Transnational American Studies, and Atlantic Studies Global Currents. Welcome, Nele. Thank you so much for inviting me, Steffi. I'm very happy to be with you. And I'm happy to have you. So let's start talking about the opening quote about the perceptions of snow that Washington Black walks into and how this kind of encapsulates the general storytelling tone of the novel and then take it a little bit from there. So we heard that snow has so many different colors and it's also a threatening environment to humans that Washington Black finds himself in. But he uses art to depict what he sees. Exactly. And I would I selected this quote first for this kind of symbolic layer that you outlined, as well as the kind of spatial component, which is so important to the novel, right? Because, of course, the snow does not occur in Canada or in the United States, but in the Arctic, where Washington finds himself along with this strange man, Christopher Wild, who's called Titch. And so they end up in the Arctic looking for Titch's father, um, who's also a scientist. And so it's, you know, it stood out to me because I thought that we could see how, you know, Washington walks through life with open eyes and how he's full of wonder and amazement of the things that he sees, but also how perceptive he is and how he manages to sort of tease out meaning um, also for us as readers um, from his changing and very contrasting environments. Um, and so the Arctic is just one of the spaces that he visits and that he experiences. Um, and it's a signal space because, of course, as part of the sort of great white north imaginary, it is part of Canada as well, which is where the author is from. So I thought it was kind of a nice roundup. But as I said, you know, it's only one of the stations of the novel as a whole, right? Yeah. And it's important to note when we talk about the protagonist and storyteller, so the, the person or the narrative instance who renders this to us, this is a black boy who grew up on, until the age of 10, I think, grew up yes. uh, on a plantation in Barbados and exactly. leaves that plantation and goes on this fantastic trip where he goes through different spaces and places and renders them to us. So there's a meta layer, of course. On the one hand, he has descriptions like this or a description of, mm -hmm. of how he looks at the moon through a reflectoscope. But he also tells of his travels to us in the novel, exactly. which are on the one hand improbable and on the other hand, maybe also overlooked. And that's the history of science part um, that I find so intriguing. So let's talk about the protagonist a little bit. What's up mm -hmm. with this Washington Black And what a fascinating character he is. I mean, on the one hand, you know, he is our focalizer, right? So everything we know, we know through Washington and through his eyes. So this is a very intimate uh, narrative setting uh, that we're thrown into, which kind of contrasts with this all-encompassing, globe-trotting adventure narrative. And we can talk about genre um, here in a second, but so this is where we start out on uh, this slave plantation on, you know, entitled Faith, or it's called Faith um, on Barbados. In 1830, um, that's important too. I mean, you exactly. say that that's the story is set in Absolutely. 1830. It's a mm -hmm. very 19th century novel also. 
Yes. Yes, so it's a historical novel that picks up on the 19th century, the early 19th century, that is, uh, very astutely. So we're, you know, in the antebellum period, if we talk about uh, the United States, we talk about pre-Confederation Canada, we talk about the Caribbean, which has seen the, the independence of Haiti in 1804, but which is still very much engulfed in the transatlantic slave trade and in the history of slavery, uh, which is very present. And I mean, this is the kind of context, of course, that Washington lives and experiences himself. So the horrors of slavery are present in this first part of the novel, very much so, because he grows up uh, in enslavement himself. And so the owner of the plantation, uh, who is Erasmus Wilde, this privileged, arrogant, terrible a white Englishman who oversees the plantation, um, you know, for his family. Um, he's the stereotypical, gruesome, cruel, ignorant slaveholder that you, that you can imagine. And so this is a hot, humid, geo, you know, geographical place, uh, this plantation. And this is where Washington comes of age and, and lives until he's 10 or 11. That's right. So. And then he leaves. Let's talk. Let's talk exactly. about how he leaves. It's 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 a it's a crazy story of how he leaves. Uh, is it? I was wondering if it's a, if it's is it, is it an elopement or is it an? I don't even know yes. what this is. So I mean, th and this is why the novel is so intriguing mm -hmm. from um, a genre point of view, but also from a narratological point of view because the way Washington leaves, and I want to come back to this later. It sounds incredible. It sounds so improbable. But Erasmus Wilde's brother shows up, Christopher, um, who is called Titch. And so he chooses Washington as an assistant. Titch is an aspiring scientist himself, so following the footsteps of his father, also trying to sort of impress his father. Um, and he has built, or he wants to build, a hot air balloon, which he calls the cloud cutter. And um, this first part um, of the novel is very dense because Washington is forced to leave Faith Plantation along with Titch following the some unexpected events that are very, very dramatic and uh, traumatizing. Um, and so Titch resolves to take Washington to, to, to save him from Erasmus Wilde and, and those who might come after them. And they leave in this hot air balloon crossing the sea. So... You know, by any means, the reader is thrown into uh, a narrative that starts with a very cruel and traumatizing beginning. And then, you know, to add to that, uh, the protagonist, who we've just gotten to know, is forced to leave under such dramatic circumstances. And that really triggers his journeys across uh, the Western Hemisphere, um, if you will. And so um, this is very much an adventure novel, but it's mm -hmm. so many other things as well. Yeah, yeah. So the adventure part would be the the improbability or the incre incredibility of him going all these places. So in between, he, he leaves from Barbados, then um, goes mm -hmm. on to uh, Virginia, Yes. Goes on a ship. So he also takes all those wonderful, mm -hmm. um, technologically advanced transportation devices with the cloud yes, cutter and the exactly. ship. Uh, he goes to mm -hmm. Virginia there. Um, Titch tells him that once you touch ground, you will be subjected to the laws of freedom in the United States. The American, wonderful American laws of freedom. And what happens is that he quickly realizes that he is being... Um, 
he's being hunted by um because there's been uh there's prize money on his head so he's very he becomes very frightened and from virginia he goes to to the arctic from there he goes to nova exactly. scotia and he ends up in the center of all things of the colonizing mm -hmm. world and that's london mm -hmm. uh, so it's exactly. a movement from a plantation through the new world to the very side of the old world and that's the the adventure part and you always yes. wonder what happens next Exactly. And let's not forget that although the final part, which is the fourth part of the novel, is entitled England or London, England, um, the very, very end of the novel takes yet another uh, incredible step when Washington and his, um, you know, his, the love of his life, Tana Goff, end up in Morocco. And I don't want to say too much, but this is an important geographical outlier, if you will, here as well. And I've, you know, it's... Uh, I mean, the ending is a whole different kind of uh, beast, uh, I would say. But um, so let's not forget that um, either. So, yes, we are in the colonial center, um, but then we are also in this space in Morocco, which is very interesting. And it's kind of a different. Yeah, it, it gives a different hue and a different note to the novel as well. Yeah. So, yes, adventure in the in the sense of geography, unexpected mobility, right? So we're in the context for sort of from a scholarly point of view, right? We have to think about black mobilities in the 19th century under slavery and beyond. So the different kinds of regimes that Washington encounters in the Caribbean, in the United States, in Canada all of these places touched and influenced and affected, sometimes dominated by slavery. But the quality changes in each instance. And then, of course, you know, the Arctic, which seems geographically, even ideologically, very far removed from the places he has known. But even there, I find the dominant topos of the novel. And this is why I've you know, I've also chosen this other quote, is the topos of strangeness. And so I think that is something that immediately sprung to me from the page, the idea of constant unease that Washington is experiencing. And that is related mm -hmm. to epistemological strangeness, but also the fact that he can't wrap his head around the people he meets, most of them white people. Yeah. And most of them, and this is a, it's it's the other generic or genre discussion that we need to have. Obviously, is the slave narrative as a backdrop. So as yes. we as the story evolves, um, his narrative voice also comes to maturity. So we start out with the narrative perspective mm -hmm. of a, of a young boy, and as you said, he often can't get his head around the things he sees. He's clearly haunted mm -hmm. by um, his fears, and he can never be wholeheartedly open with white people. To begin with, so mm -hmm. he remains suspicious because he knows that um, they might turn into, you know, a lethal threat at any point. And so even mm -hmm. when as he has, I think we can call it a friendship with Titch, um, mm. who leaves him. And then later on, he has a relationship that's friendly, um, more in a in a, a patriarchal way or more in a father son mm -hmm. relationship with botanist, uh, with a naturalist. Mm -hmm. um, also a white person. He's called Goff in the novel. He's modeled on Philip Henry Goss, mm -hmm. the historic person. These relationships are key because these figures function as enablers. Yeah. They educate him. They uh, take him places and they show him things. But they also profit from him. And that's where I, exactly. I, I was so intrigued when you said to me when we talked about this, 
the slave narrative is a backdrop because in John Sikora's words, it it comes a little bit as a black message in a in a in a white envelope. The novel takes this up, I think, the making of a story from a black person mm. through a a white kind of framing or interfering or editing device. Oh, yes. I mean, there's so many things I have to say um, about that. I think so. First of all, the genre of the slave narrative is an obvious intertext that we can consider because, well, it is the story of an of someone who is born into slavery, but then escapes from slavery in a very wondrous kind of manner, and then also experiences life in freedom and what that kind of means. He reinvents himself. He discovers his his artistry. He makes a living out of this artistry eventually. He meets the love of his life. He meets all kinds of difficult, complex, sometimes friendly, white people, partly interested in abolitionism. But as you said, you know, the relationship is always complex because, of course, they are implicated in the system of slavery, whether they want to or not. And that is Titch's biggest problem, right? So he's born into a family that are, you know, that are rich and privileged. They profit from slavery. They own slaves. They own slaveholding lands. And so as much as he wants to not be a part of that, he struggles with, but I very much am. And so he is this kind of messed up personality who wants to maybe do good in the world or do good by Washington, but who also fails in some respects. And that is, yes. of course, a topic that we see in many slave narratives as historical documents, right? So this this trajectory from slavery to freedom, dealing with white abolitionists, uh, men and women, uh, by the way. And so what and, and finding your voice, um, asserting your identity, um, et cetera, et cetera. Steffi, I loved when you wrote uh, to me with some questions that we could address. And you said, you know, names are so telling in the novel because, of course, uh, our protagonist is called George Washington Black, right? So which encompasses this paradox um, of the so-called new world. So George Washington, the first president of the United States, um, an inspiration to to name our protagonist. But then at the same time, uh, it's, of course, a nation that is founded upon the paradox of slavery that is inscribed into the con- into um, the Constitution. And so Washington, growing up, finds himself haunted by this paradox. And so that is also at the heart of the slave narrative. This is why the genre is also so relevant. Aside from the different kinds of geographical moves, so black mobility, which is also always relevant in the slave narrative, and so on and so forth. But I think the reason why I was drawn to this novel so much is I find one very powerful intertext, and I've mentioned that to you, is Olada Equiano, Gustavo's Vasa, the interesting narrative of the life of Equiano, a slave narrative, arguably, uh, and I'm putting that into question here, um, that came out in two volumes in 1789. This is a by all accounts, an extraordinary narrative. Uh, Because again, like this novel that we're reading, this historical novel, it can be many things. It is an adventure novel, a coming-of-age story, um, the narrative of a black Atlantic citizen of the 18th century, um, a scientific account, um, an abolitionist tract, and, and so many things. All of this is also contained in Washington Black. And so Equiano is is someone who is born into slavery. So 
you know, who experiences relationships uh, of all kinds to white people who promise him freedom, who promise him work, who betray him, who resell him. Eventually, he is freed, liberated, and then becomes a kind of seafaring person who visits all kinds of different places, including, and here is my big, of course, uh, moment of enlightenment, the North Pole. So Equiano ends up at the North Pole with Dr. Irving. Um, and so they, exp- they want to find a passage to India. And so he's part of this expedition and they end up in the North Pole. And this is, you know, his description of the ice around him is, of course, very reminiscent of what Washington Black is doing. Uh, they become trapped in the ice, so they, there's this moment of danger, and so on and so forth. So there are many obvious parallels, I find, between this historical person, Equiano, um, and the novel that we're reading. And so, you know, of course, we have to talk about the slave narrative as the formative genre before the Civil War, before Confederation in Canada. And so... It is underlying, but that is also to say that the slave narrative has always been a a genre that consists of many different genres, sentimental novel, adventure story, autobiography, and so on and so forth. And this is also a great prism to consider Washington Black as the novel. Yes. And what I find so intriguing specifically about um, Alauda Equiano's story and the slave narrative as genre is the very difficult truth claims attached to it. So it has a documentary quality, and that's what I meant when I when I talked about the black message, white envelope thing. So of course, this is built on real historic persons, but the contents and the way that the narrative is rendered are are have been tempered with. In the slave narrative, this happened through white editors. And in Washington Black, we have the same thing happening. But on a on a level where we we get to explore um, the workings of perspective and how these white men, well-meaning abolitionist white men, mm-hmm. deal with wash our protagonist. And one thing that I that I really like is how Edujin plays the workings of perspective against authority. And this is also maybe a good seek to. Um, the archive, the, the history of science and these things, because there's a wonderful portrait when he sees for the first time mm-hmm. uh, Titch's father in um, the Arctic because they go looking for him. He, he seems to have faked his own death, but it turns out yep. he didn't die. <laughs> That's a bit of a spoiler alert. And then Titch, of course, is happy to see his father. And then Wash also sees this person, and I have a. I'm going to quickly read out the quote here because it's so beautiful, and it shows how t- how Washington Black, uh, the protagonist, also becomes an artist in character description. And then I glimpsed him, a man rising from the shadows, like a figure from myth, the great patriarch of the wilds, fellow of the Royal Society, recipient of the Copley Medal and the Bakerian Lectureship, the man whose learning had kindled his son's mind and never burned down the man who had drawn us north through ice field and hazard against what odds oh that man though whose very treaties on the icy nature of comets once left the sorbonne in chaos whose learning could be expressed in twelve languages who admired the jokes of the tartars and the salads of the incas who had instru- instructed his three-year-old son to scoop when his hand held a, a knife and to cut it when it held a spoon for no person ought to assume a tool's use is determined by the tool. 
the man of a thousand lifetimes who had set his heavy English leather boots on the soil of five continents and collected the mud from each. I saw him and I kneeled, dripping in the low entrance, staring. For he was short, fat, and under his scraggly whiskers was a face very much alive and quite brutally ugly. So I, I totally love this because it's so, it's funny, you know. She takes the monument, establishes the guy on the pedestal. This is the Royal Society fellow, yada, yada, yada. A little later, we find out he has no front teeth, but he replaced them with, with little wooden sticks. So imagine how horrible the guy must have looked and he probably smelled really bad as well. So um, Washington is an observer who sees these things and who renders them with a dramaturgy of his own. And that's what I what I like so much about the perspective of the mm -hmm. novel. So this is, when we engage the slave narrative, um, I think this is also a claim to take the voice back yes. to the observer uh, and to the experiencer and have their have people have their own voice, the enslaved. Exactly. And, um, and I thank you for, for bringing this up because I think one thing to be said about the slave narrative is we, of course, have to acknowledge the infringement um, or infringements uh, of white editors and amanuenses and, you know, abolitionists who funded uh, publication, whatever. But we should always keep in mind um, the possibility for agency of the black subject or the black author, right? So in how far is the slave narrative also always a document to how black people can retain control over the stories. Uh, and in many slave narratives, they, they do, right? And so I think Washington Black in that sense is, of course, doing exactly that, right? So Washington is, is an astute observer, um, because that's what he has learned to do. Um, growing up in a place where you're not supposed to talk, have an opinion, or even so much as breathe on your own, he has learned to interpret everything around him the people, their looks, the tone of their voice, the way they dress, the way they behave. And this is what, what he does here as well, right? So he knows that Titch's father is supposed to be this grand uh, embodiment of Western science, you know. But then when he meets the guy, it turns out, well, you know, he's just a regular dude. Like, he's an old man uh, who's suffering from all kinds of illnesses, you know. He's fragile and struggling with his life. And, you know, I mean, we never kind of resolve the family history of the wilds, uh, but it is yeah. truly wild in the truest sense, yes. right? So. And I mean, and, and, and this is why, of course, uh, as you say, this is also a, a novel about meaning making in, in, the, in the sense of how is science a process of meaning making? Who gets to determine what are we exploring? How do we interpret so-called facts? Who is, you know, going on these explorations into the Arctic or, you know, into the deep ends of the sea? And, and how do processive, uh, processes of marginalization work within science? And so Idujin, who has shown time and again that she's concerned with marginalized voices, people whose stories are buried, forgotten, repressed. She here creates a protagonist who, against all odds in a way, uh, finds his journey uh, and his, his vocation um, and who knows or who comes to sort of learn how to deal with these white scientists and these white abolitionists who try to still like cut him out of the picture. Yeah, and we need to talk about that too. So, so 
this is a, a novel about the history of science. Notably, we have this um, Titch person who mm -hmm. heads the cloud, cloud cutter and who mm -hmm. teaches um, Wash a lot. But the second father figure, a wise scientist who's important mm -hmm. here, is uh, Philip Henry Goss, who I talked about before. The uh, inventor, so-called inventor of the aquarium mm -hmm. um, and the popularizer of natural science. And um, this has a lot to do with visual culture. And, and Wash is key in this. So Wash is the observer. And when he meets Goss for the first time, they start talking. And in the novel, it's not Goss who invents the aquarium without exactly. spoiling it. And it's, it's also not Goss who does all the drawings of the underwater fauna mm -hmm. uh, of mm -hmm. the coast of Nova Scotia that then becomes so interesting to the audiences in the London mm -hmm. Zoo. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's an untold story that's there, untold history also that's there in the novel. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, I mean... We open these these books and read about this guy invented this, this person invented that. He's a, a fellow of the Royal Society. But then it becomes clear, as Edujin tells us, that, you know, there is a lot of gratuitous labor, a lot of coincidence, and a lot yep. of things that go unnoticed. Um, exactly. That and exploitation quite the history books. Exactly. Yeah. And exploitation in the sense that Goff is very aware that the talented artist is not himself or his his daughter, of course, but Washington Black. Um, and so the kind of, I, I also love how Idujin sets this up in the novel, right? Through these evening conversations over dinner, Washington uh, sort of lays out his idea for the aquarium, how it might be possible to transport animals from Nova Scotia to England across the Atlantic. You know, a feat unheard of um, and unsuccessful so far. And then by and by, you know, Goff kind of convinces himself that it is his idea. You know, and this is a very cool kind of parallel to academia because lo and behold, you know, um, you know, I mean, as a, as a doctor. I convince myself all my ideas are always mine, never right. anyone else's. Exactly. So, <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, of course, what Edugen is doing sometimes through humor, um, is to raise awareness for the kind of whitewashing of science, um, whitewashing of history that we see time and again. Um, and here, of course, Washington, is it's his idea, it's his technologies, his experimentation that lead to the successful uh, erection, you know, building of the aquarium uh, back um, in London. And she draws on on histories that we know, you know, Matthew Hansen, uh, African-American first explorer um, of uh, the, you know, the, the Arctic, um, not Robert Perry. So also, a his, you know, a story that is under rock swept and, and other instances as well. You know, who knows of our students? I'm thinking of the American Studies classroom. Who knows of Benjamin Banneker? Most people know of, of white scientists rather, right? So these processes and strategies, uh, is all, they're also something that Ejujin, uh picks up on. Yes. So the question is maybe how much of this novel is, you know, a heuristic or how, how, how up to date is this novel with contemporary conversations that we're having in academia and maybe also in I don't know, in the public sphere. Yeah, so uh, I would like to bring in here uh, a book that I've uh, told you about that I've just bought. Um, I'm holding this. Uh, Steffi, you can see this in the camera, right? This is uh, Dujin's very new essay collection, and it's called Out of the Sun, uh, Essays at the Crossroads of Race. It came out 2022, so it's really hot off the press. 
and it is wonderfully aligned with the novel in the sense that uh, each of her chapters deals with a different continent, so with a different geographical space. So her second chapter is uh, on Canada, and it's called Canada and the Art of Ghosts. Um, and so in this chapter, she ruminates so-called ghost stories that then very immediately uh, turn to the intersection of race and ghost stories. And so she talks about Marie-Joseph Angélique, um, who is this repressed figure in the history of slavery in what is Quebec today. But she also has other instances, and her point is, you know, that so much stories are being not told because they're out of the sun. You know, they're not in focus. And this is a sort of a deliberate choice that we make. We remember some people, we remember some stories and not others. And Washington is here. Washington Black is here to tell us that he he will be remembered, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and what fascinated me reading this chapter, Canada and, you know, this unit and, and ghosts is that Washington Black and Titch are each other's ghosts. They haunt each other and they can't get each other out of their heads. And as much as they try to run away from each other or run towards each other, their complicated connection um, is at the heart of this novel. And Titch is as much haunted by the thought of Washington Black and by his presence than Washington is haunted by the by the image that he has of Titch and the trauma of being left behind by him. And so, you know, all that is to say, coming back to your question, I think that her novel is timeless in this regard, you know, and it's, you know, I mean, it came out a couple of years ago, but it's, you can read it in 2022 and you're going to be able to read it in 2026 and, and so on and so forth. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It also makes an argument about the impossibility to disentangle uh, settler colonial histories. Yeah. So there is no um, storytelling outside this logic of the uh, Enlightenment project and the mm-hmm. um, simultaneous enslavement legacy. Mm-hmm. There is no uh, outside to this. There's no Technically, there is no outside to the history of science as we know it. We can talk about the stories untold or the stories that are not in the light. But science is going to tell us, no, it's supposed to be, you know, objective. It's supposed to be Mm. founded on facts. And that's what Mm. I what I liked so much, because at the present moment, what I often think about is is art's potential for really shaking things up, Mm. uh, really asking us to reframe our epistemologies, our understandings of the world. And that's that's what this argument also does. Um, Mm. It says if you are going to, you know, conscribe to science, then there's mm-hmm. no way out. But if you're willing to live with stories that are maybe not uh, 100% obje- objectionable or 100% true or, you know, where we can prove where the sources come from, then all of a sudden this becomes much more creative, much more appealing. Exactly. I mean... I would agree. I would agree in the sense that Edugen is presenting a protagonist who is at the heart of the history of science, while at the same time showing his absolute adoration and fascination and commitment to the project of science. Right. So he is f- truly fascinated by the discoveries 
he's a part of, right? So by these animals from the deep sea, by their but you know, he does it through art. I mean, exactly, he's, a, he's an artist. Exactly. He draws them. He exactly. sees things and then he yep. draws them. He renders them. And that's his experience. He、mm-hmm. sees things. He's、yeah. fascinated, swept away, and then he draws things. Exactly. Why? How he amplifies those. Exactly. And he's while at the same time he's of course very aware of scientific or sort of you know mechanical processes of how do you keep an an animal alive when your goal is to transport it back across the ocean, right? So I mean he's aware of all these scientific methods that are being developed or that he can build on. But you're but you're right. His his connection. To the specimens or the, to the flora and fauna is through art, which is an important form of expression. And 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 in the seventeenth,、uh, sorry, in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, this connection was much more intimate than today, right? So, I mean, it, you can only tell people in England about what you saw in the Arctic if you're going to be able to draw so accurately that you can present your your drawings. In an atlas, or you know, in in a in a book to the audience that you find back home or wherever you're going, you know, and so this 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 interconnection and this non separation of the scientist and the artist, the author and the scientist at the time is is what intrigues me as well. Yeah, and it does, and I think it does translate into the present moment also in yeah. Being- Uh, swept away by all the images, all the imageries that you sometimes have no choice but to look at,、um, mm. and having to having to develop the kind of media literacy to sort through sure. them, sure, sure, by yourself and to to pick your own battles a little bit, so and to decide what story is being told. Yeah, exactly. So I think what you know what Idujin is doing is offering sort of an alternative version of this. Strand of natural science. So here, you know, it's marine biology, and and in in doing that, she's very much in line with calls to diversify、um, the natural sciences, such as or academia as a whole. You know, to to sort of question our ways of understanding, of meaning making, of writing history, of making history, and so on and so forth. And so this is, I think, also a very important feature of the novel that it partakes in that, and this is where the novel also. Draws its relevance from. Yeah, so I'm thinking the first time I read this novel, I was I was more focused on the the workings of the protagonist coming of age and maturing,、mm-hmm. and then looking back、sure. at his own story and explicating it to the reader. There's a scenario of reader address where he he doesn't speak directly to a reader as、mm-hmm. you, but it's there in that he looks back at his life and、mm-hmm. says. When I first heard this, I didn't think anything of it. But knowing what I know now, this sounds strange or this sounds familiar. And we have lots of these kind of、um, meta lapses and, and commentaries that refer to the telling present. So、mm-hmm. that's the first reading I, I I did with this novel. I was interested in the in the how the character goes about in its development and how the narrative voice、uh, comes of age. But now. There are so many additional layers <laughs> that I discovered. So there's the adventure story, the improbability of this, the fascination that you know. I mean, just imagine going to the Arctic in the nineteen eighteen thirties and the hardships of that. Or、mm-hmm. just imagine in being in London during this time.、Uh, it's 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 really also a fantastic entertainment that we're being offered. 
through his perspective. And so it's become much more complicated. It's a, it's another word. First read is like, mm-hmm, yeah, I get it. And then second read is like, oh, oh, there's this. And oh, there's this too. And there's these mobilities. And there's these crazy inventions. And there's the beautiful paintings. And uh, it becomes yeah. so layered. Yeah, I understand what you mean. And I find, you know, here too, I always go back to the Equiano text because that is precisely the reaction. If you read it with students, they will be, they will show often like surprise, you know, what the North Pole, what do you mean? Like, is this real? Um, and so it, the story seems improbable, but it is very much not. So there's a historical antecedent, right? And I'm not saying that in the 18th century, uh, you know, uh, so and so many people went to the Arctic or the North Pole or whatever, but I'm saying it is in the realm of the possible and that we have proof that people were there. And so Idujin with this kind of novel moving from place to place from continent to continent, from country to country, is also part of the project that, that raises awareness to black mobilities, even at the time when slavery was still present or when it was just being abolished. And so, you know, that the fact that black people have always lived in all of these kinds of places, that is a, also a political statement to make, right? Because it forces us as you say, to reconsider um, and to question the ways in which we understand placemaking and belonging. And so mm -hmm. in the same way that she foregrounds the notion of belonging in her essay collection, belonging is equally at the center of this novel, I find, of Washington Black, because Washington tries to find belonging in his own identity, like who am I? What does it mean for me to now be a free black artist, to be in love with Tana, to who has this complicated father. What does it mean for me to try and understand Titch, right? To be traveling the world. But at the same time, Washington is also part of this, of these migration waves of black people to and fro across the Atlantic, on the North American continent, um, in Europe, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that your reaction is very representative, even of my reaction to the novel as well, because you, as you dig deeper, you know, you really try to, you open yourself to these, to these waves and to the layers that you uncover. And this is why I also think, you know, you can pick up this novel in different points, at different points in your studies or at different points in your life and there's other things that will resonate with you. But I think it's absolutely uh, timely. And I'm, I'm so grateful Idujin wrote a historical novel because sometimes I struggle, <laughs> you know, no, no, I mean, and I mean it, you know, sometimes I struggle to point out to students that we're not done reading 18th century, 19th yeah. century texts. And it's absolutely yeah. crucial that we do that. So we understand how we end up today in 2022 or whatever, you know? And so I, I love her care and her appreciation and her portrayal of this time, which is by all means so exciting, terrible, but also wonderful. Um, and it forces us to sort of dive deep into that as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. And if it, there's maybe as a closing point that I'd like to make here, and I know as a fellow Canadianist, you also have a word or two to say on this. So the beauty of this novel is also that it's it's 
a Canadian and not a Canadian novel Correct. of the, of the literary prison. So um, it it taps into Canadianness with the different spaces that we see, mm. but it also taps into the the question of place. Yes, in the North American continent and in this context, and it clearly makes a display of uh, the transatlantic space as yes. one that is entangled, that is complicated, mm. that, you know, the protagonist travels across and goes to the different places at a certain time of discovery. Mm-hmm. And it reminds us blatantly over and over again of, of settler colonial histories. It doesn't distinguish between the U.S. or Canada, for that matter. It's all equally good or equally bad. And that's why I, I enjoyed it when you talked about the chapter in... Uh, in her essay collection about Canadian ghost stories, because that is something that, which at the same time, you know, ambiguates yeah. Canadianness, but yeah. also sets it apart from the exceptionalist or even post-exceptionalist transnational narratives of the United States that we often see at this point in American literature. So it's it's a Canadian novel that we're discussing on Lady Fiction today. Correct, and I would just like to point out, you know. There's a very deliberate choice, I think, on her part, on Dugin's part, to have the section of Nova in Nova Scotia that is set in Nova Scotia, uh, set in the year 1834. Why? Because it's the year that slavery is abolished in the British Empire, but it's also precisely 50 years after the first race riot in uh, what we call Canada today, which took place in Shelburne, Nova Scotia, which is also the setting of this part. So, you know, Edugen, she's not holding up, you know, a sign that says, uh, you know, bad slavery, here it is. But she is very, she's, she's writing this novel, of course, against the, the backdrop of slavery as a present institution um, and regime, both in the United States and in Canada. And it's like these little things that she has here and there, where you're you're aware that this is a reality that Washington faces. And no, he is not free in Nova Scotia. And he faces racism and discrimination and fear um, of being haunted and hunted um, wherever he goes. And so this is also very powerful storytelling. Mm-hmm. And yet our ideas of marine biology originate in Nova Scotia. That's mm-hmm. another decentering effort mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Well... There's so much to talk about. Uh, I can't I'm believe so we're glad at the we end. <laughs> There are so many more points that we have to make, but we, I think we can both agree that we recommend to all our listeners to read this novel, sure. to read it, you know, in the American Studies, the North American Studies, Canadian Studies classroom, or what have you, and to just indulge in all the complexities that permeate through the surface of this beautiful book. So Absolutely. Thank you so much for being my guest today for a great conversation. Thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing this. Thank you and bye-bye. Bye-bye. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. 
Thanks again for listening.